This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, July 15th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's reading is from Acts 6, verses 1 through 7, which says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Proscus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's God's word. Thank you for being here this morning. We're going to pray. Ask that God moves me out of the way and says what he needs to say. So if you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. You are a father, a perfect father, a loving father, a father who always gives us his best. And you are a sovereign God who has the power to make sure your best is always given. And so we praise you for your worthy to be praised. We thank you for in Christ you saved us. Thank you, Jesus, for you served us and By your Spirit, you have sent us to do the same. But we admit in our weakness, we are quite selfish. We are overly concerned with ourselves. But we ask for your help. We ask that you will help us to seek your kingdom first because we often prefer our own. We ask that you will Reset our minds and our hearts, and that is why we are gathered here today to worship you and to ask you to change us from the inside out. Behavior, Father, you know, just doesn't matter unless the heart has been transformed. And so we ask you to do the very thing that we cannot do in and of ourselves, to change our hearts. Remind us of who we are and all that we have in Christ. Forgive us for our self-concern. Forgive us and help us in our brokenness. Change us and help us to see our lives as you see them. Help us to see our lives and this life with your eyes and help us to see others as you see them. As you wrote through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, remind us that we are new creations but that in being a new creation, we no longer consider Christ as we did with our old eyes, nor should we consider others as we did with old eyes. But let us see as you see. Beginning with us, Father, let us see how you see us in Christ. And let that inspire us to serve others like Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing through Acts chapter 6, and I appreciate you guys being here. Um, Many of you were with us, or have been with us for a long time, and by that I mean originally in 2006, planted a church called Damascus Road Church. This church was originally Damascus Road Snohomish, wasn't planted until 2013, so we are technically five years old, which is still a youngster, just starting kindergarten. Um, but there's been, some of you have been through the history a lot with us. And if you remember, if we can go down that kind of memory lane for a second, and some of you, if you've ever been in a church plant 
or a new work, this may resonate with you as well. The early days of a church plant are nothing short of amazing. A little scary, but amazing. My first experience, we started a church in my living room. We graduated to my garage, which was a large garage, but it's a little weird. Lined with black plastic, some chairs of all kinds of sorts, organized from the neighbors who thought it was weird that I was going to have a worship service in my garage, but I said, whatever. But there's a natural energy and momentum as this small group of disciples eagerly waits for God to turn what is really nothing at the moment into something. And it's, it's like a new you know, birth of a child, right? The first days and weeks and even months are full of just joy. It's, everything's new and the experience is exciting and there's what a, things like miraculous events, right? And with a church plant, right, there certainly are a few criticisms that come as you start, but there's a thousand expectations that overwhelm that. And every little success feels like this huge victory. And every failure in those first days, like, ah, whatever, speed bump. Let's just go. Nothing's going to stop this Jesus momentum train, right? Just excited. There's no lack of enthusiasm. There's no lack of optimism. There's no lack of volunteerism. Everyone's ready to serve. What do I got to do? And in truth, while everything seems like it's the hardest it will ever be because of the size and just you know, the resources and whatever, it feels at the moment like it's easier than ever. And through that time, days turned into weeks, weeks into months, months into years. And in time, that newborn child or maybe like a new marriage seems to grow a little bit harder to get excited about. And what was a small church plant is suddenly, you know, gone from a few people into this church of a lot of people. And it isn't as easy to get energized as it once was. Or even to get up for Sunday service like it once was. Even if you do, right, you're, you're a little irritated, not eagerly expecting Jesus to do something. When we were setting up and tearing down, I remember the thought of driving, like I'd wake up real early, i go, i got to go pick up the trailer in Arlington. So you drive to get the trailer, but that's, you know, once you get the trailer, you got to drive the trailer, then you got to haul that equipment into the gym, then you got to set it all up, then you got to serve for two services, then you got to tear it down, then you got to pack it all up, then you got to drive it home, then you got to do all it over again next week. And as I said, what was energizing suddenly becomes really exhausting. And what was once joy-filling becomes maybe joy-robbing. It was once felt like a privilege, now is starting to feel like duty. Where once our minds perhaps rejoiced at the thought of serving, now we ask, how many times have I served in a row now? And why isn't Bobby serving? I haven't seen him in service. Things change. And in serving, as you begin to serve over and over again, you kind of swing between. And maybe this has never been your experience. Maybe this is just mine or others who have been with us for many years. But I think at times we're at risk of swinging between self-pity and self-righteousness. Woe is me, and I am awesome, and that person's not. Right? <laughs> and you become really more and more self-focused. And meanwhile, your affection for God and even your affection for the church wanes because you've forgotten what we are doing and why you're doing it at all. Now, maybe that was just some imaginary experience. I don't know. Over the years, uh, I've felt at different times in different ways, probably all those things, and maybe you have too. 
But contrary to popular belief, struggling to serve in the church is not a new or unusual phenomenon. It's not a modern or Western or American church problem, though many might be arguing that case. I would suggest that the church has been struggling with serving since the very beginning. If you recall, we've been obviously going through Acts and different pieces of it. Acts 2.42 and Acts 4.32 are some very iconic descriptions of the early church. Both Acts 2.42 and 4.32 describe a unity in the church that has compelled many modern day Christians to call for a return to the New Testament church. And when you hear that phrase, those are the passages they are typically talking about. And as the church grew, we see in the early church love and service seem to be very natural and very easy. If we just take the second passage that I referenced in verses 34 and 35 of chapter 4, Luke goes so far as to say that there was not a needy person among them. That's a pretty like powerful statement. Considering at this point the church is thousands. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as those had owners or lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Not a needy person among them, and when a need rose, it was met by a very sacrificial generosity. You see, the church is caring for one another, unified in its community, and devoted to the mission of Jesus. And I would argue that was the experience very often, and it is often the experience of church plants in the early days. But I think that those who call back, like, let's return to the New Testament church, may be a little bit of a romanticized view and we are sobered maybe to some of the reality as you keep reading the books of, book of Acts. Because by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, in some sense, the honeymoon's over. In some sense, it's not as easy anymore. It's not as carefree. And it's no longer problems coming from the outside, it's some problems from within. Luke writes this, it says in the first verse of chapter 6, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, church is still growing, everyone's excited, except a few, it says a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. These would be Greek Jews versus native Hebrew Jews, if you will. Helen, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their Greek widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. <clears throat> so there's, for the first time, disunity. There is division, possibly discrimination as a cause in the church. And the size of the church is still increasing, and, and as it grows though, right, more people come in, and as more people come in, there are more needs there. And from the very beginning, as I think the church is responsible to now, the church was committed to helping the most vulnerable in society. Orphans and older widows who would not be able to support themselves. And so complaints obviously begin to rise because some of the widows are being overlooked in what is the really daily distribution of food and resources to make sure that they are cared for. And so you have Greek-speaking Jews bringing a charge against the native-speaking Jews. And the direct thing is like, look, they're missing out on food, but the very fact that they include, it's like, well, a complaint arose that some widows... They're actually implying that there's some discrimination going on. That it's not just an oversight. 
And so the 12 apostles summon, which I think is interesting, the full number of the disciples. So even though the leaders have gotten this complaint, they gather the whole church to get together to solve the problem. And they decide, as you heard read, the solution is to appoint these seven kind of special servants to fulfill this particular task or duty and make sure that the widows get fed. And as we enter into this kind of text, I want us to understand that the success or failure of a church, its health and its effectiveness, does not depend on the quality of its music. It does not depend on the um, greatness or lack thereof of the building, whether that be in a garage with black plastic or in an 1882 building, or even something that's newer. The success or health of a church does not depend upon um, whether you've got fantastic programs or not, or the existence of particular ministries. I would argue that it depends greatly on the servants in the church and the motivation behind their serving. Now, the question is, why, why do we serve at all? According to this passage, the kinds of servants that they are asking for uh, are, are being asked to accomplish three things. There are three really important things for this church or the church as to like why you would need servants at all. One is, there are just physical needs in the church that need to be met. Two is, there's disunity. So, unity is important. We need servants for unity. We need servants to meet the just actual flat-out plain needs that exist. We need servants to actually make sure the church is unified. And then the last thing that the apostles say, we need servants to make sure we support the teaching of the Word. Now, the question, though, is... is this kinds of service, particularly these seven guys, is just only the responsibility of those who are appointed to the task. Meeting the needs, making sure the church is unified, supporting the ministry of the Word. And while we agree, we have to agree, because the Bible teaches this, that there are certainly special offices of service like deacons and elders they're not mentioned in here. In many ways, this is a foundational deacon passage, but it's not explicitly the office that's being described here. There are deacons in the church. There are elders in the church. Those who lead by serving and those who serve by leading. I would propose that everyone who is saved by Jesus is a servant. It's like, wow, that's really earth-shattering. Um, well, it might actually be. It's interesting when you don't have enough servants, what happens? Consider this idea, which is maybe a weird analogy. Um, it's easy to serve when you're small, as I said. When you're only 25 people, like if someone isn't serving, it's really obvious. And it's like, well, someone's got to do it. Like, and people just go. But as things grow, things change. And please know that, like, I'm not coming today as a sermon like, okay, this is the way Pastor Sam's going to get everyone to serve. Like, we're just in Acts 6. Like, this is where we're at. But I know the experience of what happened. So think about this. 15 people. And in that group of 15 people, somebody has a heart attack. How many people are jumping to help that person? 14, right? Why? Whoa, what's going on, Jim? Like he's jumping on him. When you're in a large group, 100 people, 200 people, someone has a heart attack, what happens? The assumption is, well, someone will probably help them. I, I don't know if that's just psychology or if that's flesh. I don't know. 
But there's a, there's a turn at some point where we begin to think, well, someone will take care of that. Oh, I think there's someone appointed to take care of that, right? But what if everyone who is saved by Jesus is a servant? And so if that's true, there are certainly servants in the church, but perhaps we need to view it differently in, say, servants as the church. Every member of the church is a servant, whether you have been educated as a leader, server, or appointed as one. And this is, I think, hard for us to to believe, or maybe easy to believe and hard to actually live. If you think about it, the the reason that the disunity in this particular context in Acts 6 arose at all in the early church is that at some point, at some point, people started thinking, I should say, stopped thinking selflessly and started thinking selfishly again. I add the again word because selfishly is where we all start. They began to prefer themselves or their own to others. But Christian or biblical service requires that we prefer others, whether they're our own or whether we even like them, more than our own preferences. That we sacrifice willingly, that we give our time and energy that we could use for our own personal benefit to others. It's an interesting way to think about it. I could use this for my own personal benefit, but I choose to use it for others. Now, we understand this in uh, marriage. Like, hopefully we do. When you're newly married, at least you do. Where you realize, like, man, I can't live as selfishly as I did. I can't just think for myself anymore. I, I actually... My decisions now impact this other person. We have to be unified. I'm going to have to serve, and, and maybe this other person will think about serving me, but I can't let that dictate what I do I, if it's going to work. And then parenting, right? My wife was gone yesterday to teach at a retreat. It was rad, but like you're with your kids, and you realize real quick, first, how much my bride serves our family, but secondly, how hard it is to serve five kids. Like it's dependent upon serving. Like family really kind of brings that to bear pretty easily. We understand it in marriage. We understand it in, I would say, parenting. But for some reason, we forget about it at times in the church. It's hard for us to take a mentality of service because it's not natural. It's natural for us to sin and serve ourselves. Apart from Christ, if you hear nothing else, maybe hear this. Apart from Christ, service is not my natural inclination. It's fair to say, to grab a really horrible phrase from culture, in some way I was born this way. Right? I was born with a natural inclination to self. But, here comes the big but. We were reborn. We were reborn to serve when we were reborn in Christ, if you were reborn in Christ. Yeah, I was born a certain way, with a certain inclination, with certain desires, and it's pretty much served myself, but I have been reborn. We must be very careful abdicating our Christian responsibility to serve to the super servants or the professional Christians, whoever those might be in your world. In fact, a commitment to serve others is much more about identity than it is responsibility. In other words, it's not a cause for our salvation. It is the result of it. Let me prove it. Very well-known passage. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. 
I'm sure that you have probably read this passage, heard this passage, perhaps you've skipped a small phrase in this passage, which I think is very important. Paul is writing and in many ways speaking about the humility of Christ in His incarnation. And the Son of God coming to earth. And he writes this, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2 in the letter to the Philippians. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He talks about this mind. He wants... He's in prison, right? He's writing to the Philippians. He's like, I want nothing more for you guys to be unified around this way of thinking. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I love that he does not provide a context for that verse, which means it applies to every context. Consider others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests. He's getting more detailed in case you're misunderstanding me. Let each of you... Now, side note, this is a letter to the church. This is a letter that will be read publicly in the church. So he's writing to the church. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5. Here you go. Here's the rub. Here's the punch. Here's the gut check. Have this mind among yourselves, which he's described, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I love asking the question, what does the Bible not say there? which should be yours in Christ, which ought be yours in Christ, which is yours in Christ. You have the mind of Christ and this attitude of service in your mind if you have been saved. Oh. He's appealing to who they are in Christ, not who they should be apart from Him. And he describes it more. Who, though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. A deacon. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, being humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, why do we serve at all? Why do we serve in our marriages? Why do we serve in our families? Why do we serve in our communities? Why do we serve in the church? Because Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator of the universe, entered into our self-inflicted brokenness and served us. That's why. And He changed us through faith in His life, death, and resurrection. And He gave us a new mind and a new heart with new desires. He Himself said He came not to be served, as I read in the beginning, but to serve. This is the Lord of the universe. And yet we struggle. Ironically, the reason that we don't serve is that we are too devoted to our own greatness. The very thing that Jesus said would make us great was service. So the service of Jesus Christ for us is the starting point, the motivation, the inspiration for every act of service we'll perform as a Christian. 
And if it's not, if you are serving for any other reason other than response to how Christ has served you, you're in danger of being on the path of self-righteousness and thinking God owes you or someone else does. It always has to start with Christ. Why do I serve Christ? But it's important to talk about the kind of service that we're talking about here because it's interesting, even if we become convinced that we are to serve because Christ served us, we create categories in our mind that we deem worthy to sacrifice for or Christian enough. So it shouldn't be lost on us that these men are appointed to resolve an issue that has to do with widows getting food. I think that is an important thing, but we're talking about ultimately waiting on tables. And I unfortunately believe that many of us would not deem that worthy of our time. In appointing special servants, the disciples make a remarkable statement that doesn't help if we misunderstand it. In verse 2, when they're presented the complaint, they say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Again, in verse 4, they will say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. It's almost as if the toilet's plugged. Well, I'm the pastor, so somebody better clean that toilet. I'll be busy preaching, right? They can have that feel to it, like, oh, ooh, that's yucky. This passage, as I said, has become foundational in how we understand the office of deacon that's described specifically in 1 Timothy 3, though it's not a direct correlation. There's a lot of foundational truth that leads to that conclusion. Likely, this is because the Greek word for deacon, or a variation of it, meaning serve or serving, shows up three different times in this passage, though you wouldn't know if you weren't reading Greek. Verse 1, the daily deaconing, the daily serving, or distribution in different, pass- different translations. Verse 2, we shouldn't give up the word to serve tables, to deacon tables. And verse 4, that word for ministering the word is more of deaconing of the word. In other words, we see that everyone's a servant of some kind. Serving the same Lord in different and unique ways. And even though we see like, well, it's all serving, I think if we're just fleshly for a second, I don't mean that in the worst way, but just like serving tables doesn't sound as prestigious or public or wonderful as serving the Word. So we have to be really careful creating categories because we can start to see whatever service is needed in the church or service is needed in your family as less than. Let's just take it out of the church for a second. I wonder sometimes how um, insignificant moms feel at times because they view their tasks, chores as mundane, I say they view, or maybe that's being communicated to them as not as important as what so-and-so does. And I would argue that is certainly not the case. It is a special kind of service that is instrumental in shaping my children and glorifying God and a number of other things that make this world go round. Pretty much without moms, we don't exist literally and figuratively. But I wonder sometimes when we look at different tasks that are needed in the church or needed in the family, we're like, well, that's not, that's not worth my time. Which really we're saying that's not worthy of me. So what's not worthy of you to do? As needs arrive in the church, whether it be something we may go, well, this isn't as important as, as teaching a Bible study or, or preaching on a Sunday morning. I mean, there's definitely a hierarchy. Is there? Cleaning the church, making coffee, 
serving the kids, making sure that, you know, there's security so we're safe. Like those insignificant. Where's our line? This is worthy of me. This is not worthy of me. I think it's interesting that Jesus didn't view service this way. We must not just consider who He is, but also how He lived and the example He gave us before He went to the cross. And I would say the best example of what I'm talking about is John 13. John 13 is an excellent passage to consider whether or not a particular service is worthy of our time. Or said another way, whether it's below me. Because if it's below you, what is your disposition perspective on that person who is doing it? Are they below you? Are they not worthy? John 13 uh, is interesting. I'll read the passage, beginning in verse 1. It says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Which is a beautiful verse. He loved them to the end. Love it. He's gathered for His last supper. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things in his hands and had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, isn't it interesting that he mentions Judas is still there? This is the one whom Jesus knows is going to betray him. It says, verse 4, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I think it's hard for us to understand, maybe easier in our Tiva Northwest, but a little hard to understand how nasty these feet were. And there are all kinds of implications and, and, and different uh, lessons we can get from this passage. It's, it's, there's a thousand sermons in this passage. But we just for a second just talk about what Jesus is doing here. He is the Son of God rising up to do what amounts to the task that a lowly servant should have done or any of the disciples there he cleans their feet. Yes, there are all kinds of spiritual implications. There's all kinds of lessons to learn from that. But let's just take the flat out tangible thing he's doing, which is washing camel dung and dirt and yuck off the feet of his disciples, his creations. Do you think for a second Jesus thought, I don't know if this is worthy of me. Peter did. Peter says, Lord, you, you wash my feet? He puts Lord, not Jesus. Lord, you're going to wash my feet? To which I wish, Scripture is perfect, so to wish this is weird. I wish Jesus would have said, well, you didn't step up, Pete. If you skip down to verse 13, I believe, or 12, when he had washed their feet and put on the outer garments and resumed his place, he said, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If then your teacher and Lord have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet. For I've given you an example. So that you also should do just as I have done to you. The one who should have been served at the lowliest of jobs, or what the world would consider, what even his own disciples there considered as the lowliest job in the moment. And this wasn't preaching, this wasn't teaching. He wasn't like, guys, I'm going to the cross soon. Someone get my big toe because it's really dirty right now. I think Jesus had a few other important things to do. 
but he served. And we have many servants here at Restoration Road who at time do what I would argue seem from the outside like mundane jobs, dirty jobs, thankless jobs that are overlooked and underappreciated. But I would argue that there is no such thing as a little job when it's done like and for Christ. There is no such thing as a little job when it is done like and for Christ. It is because of Christ and through Christ and for Christ that we serve. And this truth not only transforms what, what we might call Christian service, I would argue that it actually has the power to make all of our service Christian and Christ-like. Now, there are many needs that, that we can meet in the world and we at times have the opportunity to do that, but I would like us to, as we kind of come here, to focus a little bit on meeting the needs that we're actually responsible to meet. I believe that kingdom service begins and finds its actual complete and full fulfillment in the church. But to be truthful, I would argue that many of us and myself included for much of my life, often give our best service elsewhere. But that's not what Jesus did, and that's not what we're to do. Insofar as we serve to meet the needs of the church, and serve to protect the unity of the church, and serve to support the ministry of the Word, we fulfill God's mission. I'm convinced that primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, God has given us talents and gifts and time and energy to serve His mission through His church. That is why we are here. If the church is the people of God that Jesus died to save and is returning for, that has to be true. I like what author and uh, and. I don't know if he's still a pastor. I'll say author and pastor at one time at least, Paul Tripp. He said several things that I appreciate. One was each of our lives is shaped by the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. Each of our lives is shaped by the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And in truth, we prefer our own kingdoms when we should prefer God's. Jesus told us to seek His kingdom first, and we do this by using all that God has given us to serve one another that in everything God might be glorified. This is why the church is the most unique community, organism, people on earth. Other kinds of service, whether it be service in the world somewhere, in the community somewhere, is important. And it is the work of restoration, but the work in and through the church is actually the work of revelation. That's what the Bible says. It says it puts God on display. We read that in Ephesians chapter 3. Where Paul writes, beginning in verse 8, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Through the church, the wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Insofar as the church loves one another, like family, 
And if nothing else, it is considering others more important than yourself. And that's not just those people like you. That's the beauty of the church. There's such a diversity that says what brings us together is not our affinity. It's not our shared cause. It's Christ. And the world should see such a distinct difference to go, wow, you people are so different from one another and yet you love each other. Why? I can't figure out what would bring you together. You don't like the same things. You don't do the same things. Christ. We're saved by the same Savior. Insofar as the church loves one another, God's wisdom is revealed. Insofar as the church is unified and not divided or full of discrimination, God's wisdom is revealed. Insofar as the church is serving to support the ministry of the Word, to make sure that the Word is upheld, that nothing is hindering the communication and proclamation of the Word, God's wisdom is revealed. This is the purpose, I believe, of the church and therefore the individual Christian is part of it. Now, sin tempts us to function like consumers, seeking our own glory and our own greatness. But as we return to Christ, we see Jesus said greatness is actually found in serving. If we really believed that, we would never have any problem signing people up to serve anything. You realize that? If we really believed Jesus' words that greatness comes from serving, volunteerism would never be a problem. So that's the sin in us causing us to disbelieve that. And that is motivated or inspired by the fact that we've forgotten the gospel. The sin in us tempts us to put our service on a value chart and to view our service as mundane or meaningless or this one great and this one less. But Jesus said that faithfulness is the only thing that matters. And when you do anything, and he says, and you do anything for the least of these in Matthew 25? He says, you did it for me. So it's not mundane. It's actually for Jesus. And the sin in us tempts us to give our best service elsewhere. But let me just give you a really basic truth. If Jesus is our example of perfection. Ask yourself where Jesus gave his best. He gave his best to the church. Now, serving will be a fight because we have a flesh trying to reign over us, but we have a spirit that's fighting within us. And it's a fight worth fighting because simply our service like Christ unto Christ glorifies God. Our service glorifies God. And this includes the mundane. I love, again, that Paul Tripp said, if God doesn't rule your mundane, He doesn't rule you. He doesn't rule your mundane. He doesn't rule you. Like, where's the line for you? Well, this glorifies Him and this doesn't. What if all of life did if it's done unto Christ, for Christ, motivated by Christ? Our service glorifies God. In Christ, our service sanctifies us. It does change you. And we are all in the business of being changed to look more like Christ. So if you don't want to look more like Christ, don't serve. That's a weird statement. But if you desire to be like Christ because you believe that His life of perfection is the life that we are going for, it's the life actually of joy, He is the way, the truth, and the life, then you will serve like Him because you know it will change you. And let's be honest. 
We're never changed by anything easy. And lastly, our church, I'm sorry, our service does satisfy us. You know, Paul wrote right after or right before the passage of Philippians 2 that I read in Philippians 1:20, he says, To live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. He believes that having suffered all kinds of things and in his service to Christ is now in prison. And he says, to live is Christ, to die? That would be rad! Because I get to be with Jesus. Service does satisfy, as, as difficult as to imagine it, getting to that place. And lastly, the service... Our service, however big or small, does make a difference. That last verse in Acts 7, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 6, verse 7, shows us that it makes a difference. As they start to serve, the need's taken care of, they unify the church, they're supporting the ministry of the Word so the apostles can continue to preach and teach. What does it say? And the Word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The Word of God increased, meaning more people believed in Jesus. They believed the words of life. Service does not save, but service to one another supports service to the Word that does. I can't promise your experience of service will not tire you out, because all Christ-like service is costly, but it does promise to grow your faith. We'll close with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, which is the passage at the end of the deacon passage. And the role of a deacon, the role of a professional servant, for lack of a better phrase, those appointed to service are given a promise. It says, those who serve well as deacons, those who serve well as servants, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You want to grow your faith? The Word says, Serve, and your faith in Christ will grow. You want to know why? Because you'll get closer to Him as you live more like Him. And you're thinking about all those things you're doing for Him as if those people you're doing it for are Him. That grows your faith. Amen. Let's pray.